U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the estimable, esteemed, whatever you want to call him today, the EXO, Christoph. I'll take both of those. Thank you, Dale. Uh, hello. You're, you're welcome. Oh, hello. And listeners abroad. And listeners near. Oh, yes. I, I consider abroad past the my refuge. Just if you're outside of my house, you're you're out there. So hello, everybody out there. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. So today we are going to be covering some ships. We're going to do a ship episode. How does that sound to you? Nice. Yes. I think it's uh, getting into the nitty gritty of what a ship can and cannot do would be very, uh, what is the word? I'm going to try to be fancy. Elucidating. Huh? I'll give it to you. Thanks. We're gonna do some old ships, though. We're not. We're we're not even anywhere close to doing a modern ship. All right. So, um, are you ready to get underway? Uh, yes, sir. All right. So the first one we're gonna talk about is the USS New Ironsides. So she was a wooden-hulled, broadside ironclad built for the Navy during the American Civil War. Let's get into her statistics a little bit. Her name was the USS New Ironsides. Her namesake was actually the USS Constitution. She was ordered October 15th, 1861. And she was built by William Cramp and Sons in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Do you? Th I want you to guess at how much she cost to build. All right, hold on. So this is in uh, 1860s dollars then? Yes. Okay, I'm going to say $462,712. A little low. Okay. It was it was $780,000. But Price is Right rules, I'm still good. Yeah, but this is a Price is Right. Oh. This is, this is the U.S. Navy playing. History Podcast. We have our own rules. Right, and you played The Price is Wrong. Oh, so she was launched May 10th of 1862, and she was sponsored by Commodore Charles Stewart. She was then commissioned August 21st, 1862, and then her decommissioning date was April 6th, 1865. A little bit more about her vitals. She was a broadside ironclad. She displaced 4,190 tons. She had a length of 320 feet. Her beam was 57 feet, 6 inches, and her draft was 15 feet, 8. Hold on a second. Uh, this may come as a shock to you, but I'm, I'm a little bit ignorant about uh, the vocabulary surrounding ships. What? I know, I know. Uh, so hold on to your, your hats. Beam and draft. You. Beam and draft. I assume those are like length and width, or what is that? The beam is her width. Okay. The length is her length. Okay. And her draft is how deep she sits in the water. I see. Okay. I was I was asking because the listeners would would ask. I mean, I don't want to make them feel foolish, so I'm going to be like their representative. I mean, I knew that. I knew that, but 
Why do you keep winking at me? I've got something in my eye. Okay, yeah, I got it. All right. Continue. <laughs> so she was powered by 1,300 kilowatts. She had one shaft, two direct-acting steam engines, four water tube boilers, and she could make, she could, uh, make seven knots with uh, that propulsion equipment, which is eight miles an hour. That's pretty good. I mean, this was the age where they just really started putting ironclads together, right? And so I imagine trying to propel that weight of a ship was new-ish, right? Ish. This is also when they had sails as backups. Oh, okay. Did the new Ironsides have sails as backups? Yeah. Yeah, she did. Nice. Um, her crew complement, 449 officers and enlisted. She was armed with 14 11-inch smoothbore Dahlgren guns, two 150-pounder parrot rifles, two 50-pounder Dahlgren rifles, and her armor consisted of a belt four and a half inches wide. Her battery armor was also four and a half inches. Her deck had one inch of armor, and her bulkheads were two and a half inches. So, a little bit about her design. So, after the U.S. received word of the construction of the Confederate's casement ironclad, the CSS Virginia, Congress was like, yeah, that's not going to stand. Here's a one and a half million dollars to build armored steamships. Go, get, go get to it. So, the U.S. Navy advertised for proposals for ironclad steam vessels of war. And on August 7th, Gideon Wells and the Secretary of Navy appointed three members of the Ironclad Board and established it the next day. Their task was to examine plans for the completion of Ironclad vessels. They evaluated around 17 different designs and whittled them down to about three. These three different designs differed substantially in their design and they and their degree of risk. The monitor was the most innovative design because of its low freeboard, shallow draft, and her iron hull, and her total dependence on steam power. And the most risky part of this design was the rotating gun turret. Because not anything like that had ever been built or tested by any Navy. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess when I think about movies or, or ships that I've seen in real life, the cannons are fixed on the side, and they, you have to turn the ship to aim the guns. Yes. And the whole reason she got made was because the designer of it, a guy named John Erickson, guaranteed that he could deliver the boat in 100 days. So they were like, you know what? Do it. It's pretty bold. A hundred days doesn't seem like a lot of time to put something like that together. No, that's a little over, what, three months? Right. Now, though, the wooden hold USS Galena, which was the second design, her most novel feature was her armor of interlocking iron rails. So, 
that was just what set her aside. Huh. Now, the new Ironsides, who we're talking about today, was influenced by the French ironclad Galore. She was actually the most conservative designer of the three, and actually was got a lot of her design copied from a lot of French ship designs. So to minimize her draft, new, new Ironsides was giving, given a wide beam and a flat bottom. She had a rectangular ram that projected six feet forward from her bow to, you know, because this is the day of ramming. Yeah. And that's a pretty, I mean, it's a heavy ship, right? You were talking about the displacement, and that's, even at seven knots, you're going, you're, you have a ton of momentum, and so if you're just focus, focusing it in this one beam and going into some ship, Especially if it's a wooden ship, I would imagine it would just get just demolished. Yeah, she's displacing 4,190 tons. Yeah, that's a, quite a lot. She's a heavy boat. So she also had a two-piece articulated rudder, and it unfortunately proved unsatisfactory in service because as she got faster, she got more unmanageable they blamed the rudder but her hull shape aft was what was most likely causing it because it would push the water actually away from the rudder oh disrupt disrupting the flow of water to the rudder which means that you know less water there less steering ability yeah, that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. And the last thing is that her hull was coppered to help reduce fouling. And that's just below the waterline. So does that help with turning ability? Or what? what is the benefit there? Well, as boats sit in the water, sea creatures like to come by and live on the hull. I see. Copper helps prevent this. Okay. Have you ever seen a boat taken out of the water and then you see all that sea life just on the hull? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. That's what you try to prevent. Got it. Okay. So she had two simple horizontal two-cylinder direct acting steam engines, which drove a single brass 13-foot propeller. The steam was provided by four horizontal fire tube boilers, which worked at a, a pressure of about 20 to 25 PSI. The engines produced about 1,800 horsepower, which gave the ship the maximum speed of around, you know, six, seven knots. Now, she normally carried about 360 tons of coal just to fuel her, and her propeller could be disengaged to reduce drag while she was under sail. She was barkey rigged. She had three masts that were used only for long distance movements. Once they were on station, they were removed along with all of their rigging. Now, her best speed, apparently, under sail and steam together was a top speed of, of seven knots. So how does that compare to the, the ships of the era that were solely 
uh, wind power. I imagine it still seems slow, although it's probably carrying double the weight, I'm sure, or more. Ship speed by wind alone would depend on a lot of different factors. Um, the sail configuration, the weight of the boat herself, and, and how much wind you actually have available. The smaller the boat, the faster you go. But again, no wind, you're becalmed. You ain't going nowhere. Right. I'm just, I guess, I'm trying to get a comparison to an average of the era. Is that, un, would it be unheard of to go 20 knots in a, in a sloop or a frigate or? Well, the Constitution, which her, her namesake, was a wooden-hulled, three-masted frigate. Her speed was about 13 knots Okay. when full sail. So the new Ironsides was roughly half. And so you, it could be outmaneuvered, I'm sure, but it, it had a lot of oomph, we'll say. There's drawbacks and, and uh, positives to anything you do. She was a lot more armored than, say, a wooden sailing ship. So the wooden sailing ship might be able to do run circles around her, but if you can't penetrate that hull, then, you know, you ain't going to do nothing. Right. Doesn't matter how slow you are. And, you know, technology is improving every day, and you got to test out the technology. And this is the way everything was going, so this is the way you're going to have to go to keep up. So let's get back to her armament. Now, originally it was going to consist of 16 smoothbore, muzzle-loading, 9-inch grain guns mounted on the gun deck. But the Navy was like, the performance of those guns during the Battle of Hampton Roads sucked. We want the 11-inch guns. So, of course, you put bigger guns on the boat, you're going to have to change the design. Because now you have to accommodate 14 11-inch guns. In addition of two muzzle-loading 8-inch and then 150-pounder para-rifles. Then they're also going to put in two 5.1-inch 50-pound Dahlgren rifle. And they use these as the chase guns. And then they figured out those sucked and replaced them with 60-pound Dahlgren rifles. Now, each of these 11-inch guns, they weighed approximately 16,000 pounds. Golly. And they fired a 136-pound shell with a range of about 3,650 yards. Maximum of elevation of about 15 degrees. That's quite a bit. That's quite far. Now, the muzzle-loading Parrot rifles, they fired 152-pound shells and had a muzzle velocity of around 1,200 feet a second. The 17-caliber guns weighed around 16,300 pounds each, and the 50-pounder rifles weighed approximately 5,600 pounds. It's really decked out. I mean, just the weight of the guns alone, plus the ammunition, plus even the fuel, that's a lot of weight. Yeah. Now, the existing carriages that they had for the 11-inch guns were actually too long to fit in the new Ironsides battery. 
So they made new iron carriages, and which means that instead of the gun riding in wooden carriages, they rode in a iron carriage that actually slid on iron rails. These new carriages allowed the gun to pivot at the ports to minimize the size of the ports, and they put on compressors and clamps to squeeze the rails to increase the fi friction between the rails and the cradle. Unfortunately, though, they were not enough to be able to handle the recoil force when the gun was fired. Oh. So they put on a couple more rope breaching to restrain the guns. Uh, you know, it, it still wasn't good enough, but they did what they could do. Now we get into the armor. So her belt was a, a complete waterline belt, and it was four and a half inches thick. Below the waterline, it was reduced to three inches, and the belt actually reached to around three feet above the waterline. Now above this belt, the 170-foot battery was protected by four and a half inches of armor, and the bow and stern were left unprotected. Transverse bulkheads were added during the construction to protect the ends of the battery. It was two and a half inches of wrought iron backed by 12 inches of white oak. The deck had three inches of yellow pine beneath one inch of wrought iron. And the French at this time were putting armor plates to the ship's hull and deck by countersunk screws. And so because this is pretty much a stolen French design, they were like, we're going to do that too. I mean, if, if their ships were successful, there's no reason not to do the same thing. Yeah. Now, these armor plates were cut with a groove on each side where they put an iron bar between each plate. This was to help better distribute the shock of impact. The side armor was backed by 21 inches of wood. Now, the conning tower had three sides. And this was also added during the construction. They would put it in as an afterthought. It was placed behind the funnel and the main mast and had no visibility directly forward. It was very small and it could only fit three people. It was a test, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say that doesn't seem like very many people or very effective, especially if you can't see forward. There seems to be a lot of limitations, but I'm trying to balance that with this is new. This is all new. So they're, they're just trying stuff. And yeah. there's a war right now, you know, in their minds. It's like, we need something now. And so this, I can see compromises were made. Yeah. Now, each of the gun ports was protected by two armored shutters, each of them four inches thick. And each shutter rotated on a axle at the top and operated from inside the battery which means that in combat, these shutters ended up getting cracked or broken when they got hit. And very rarely is a shutter jammed in either the raised or closed position. Normally, they got jammed halfway. That's the worst. Yeah. So let's get into her service life a little bit. So right after she was commissioned, she set sail for Hampton Roads, where a guy named Rear Admiral... Goldsboro was because he had been requesting her since July and he wanted her 
He was afraid that there was going to be a Confederate sortie down the James River to attack his ships. And he did not believe that his armored sloops, the Galena and the Monitor, would be enough. Now, in August, Secretary Wallace ordered her back to Philadelphia for post-trial repairs. Her voyage in Hampton Roads revealed a few problems. You know, her steering, gun recoil, and she was slow AF. It seemed like three very important items in a warship. Yeah. So they had thought about the gun recoil problems, and they had started a, a fix for that. But the other two problems, they couldn't figure out what the heck was going on with it. So they were like, you know what? C'est la vie. Well, yeah, it's, it's a French design, so... Yeah, she, she, she was kept ready to respond to any Confederate attack. And while the mechanics were just like trying to hunt down any problem they could to fix it. Or the, the recoil problem, I mean... Hey, you know, the crew, training. So then after all that was, you know, they did what they could. She joined the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron at Port Royal in South Carolina. When she first got there, her, she exchanged her masts and riggings for poles suitable for signaling. Because, you know, she's not fast. She's not going to be able to chase those smugglers down. So why not use her as a communication ship? Right. A guy named Rear Admiral DuPont, he was like, what the heck is going on with that conning tower? Cut that funnel down so these guys can see in front of them. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he, they cut the funnel, and the guys in the conning tower almost asphyxiate from the fumes. Oh, yeah, well, he was there for a reason. Yeah, and it didn't help the guys on the gun deck either. So they, they, they put the they put the funnel back. Now, then he was like, you know what, guys? Why don't you just pick up the conning tower and move it? Now, this weighed, this weighed 18 tons. So it ended up being too heavy to be able to be moved with the equipment that they had at sea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would have... Imagine getting that order. It's like, hey, move that. Uh... Okay. Oh, I, I, I know the feeling. When you have to pick up a heavy valve that is made to be open and closed directly from the hull of the boat to be able to let seawater into your machinery, it's a heavy valve. I imagine so, yes. And so you have to send four guys up to where it's stored, which is about... From the engine room, we're going to go one, two. The engine room itself was four decks high. Wow. No, three decks high with another four decks that you had to climb to be able to get from the engine room to the main deck. And then it was up another four decks. And then the length was not as far because it was in the forward main machinery room, but... It also weighed about five tons. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so that was that's. I know, I know how they feel. That's nuts. How do you? I mean, very carefully. Okay, there we go. So the day after the Confederate castmate, ironclad, the USS Cora, 
and the CSS Palmetto State, they went out and captured two Union ships. So New Ironsides was ordered to patrol off of Charleston Harbor. And she remained there for the rest of the year, pretty much. Except when she had to pull, pull into Port Royal for resupply. Okay. She participated in the first battle of Charleston Harbor, where nine Union ironclads entered the harbor and conducted a very long bombardment of Fort Sumter. We had talk, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. I remember, yeah. And New Ironsides served as the flagship during this battle. Admiral DuPont occupied the conning tower during the engagement, so he had a smokestack right in front of him. So let's <laughs> hope they turn the boat so he could look out the port starboard side. Right. So the, the captain actually had to command the ship from the gun deck. Now, DuPont had his own pilot with him who was not familiar with New Ironsides. And the channel used during the attack was actually shallower in places than, you know, a deep-drafted vessel can get through nicely. Yeah. So this made sure that the boat maneuvered even more erratically than she already does and had to anchor a number of times to avoid going aground. The monitors, the Catskill and the Nantucket collided with her when they were trying to go past her. Thankfully, no damage. Just, you know, a little bit of paint scraping. As she was, you know, leaving... She actually accidentally anchored over a Confederate mine that was filled with 3,000 pounds of gunfire. We talked about this. Yeah. I just... Remember what happened? Uh, I believe it was nothing. Yes. Gold Star. It did not detonate. So during this whole battle, she only fired one broadside and was hit over 50 times. Wow. We will fire a broadside. And they are shooting back. Crap. <laughs> You're not supposed to shoot back, guys. Uh, but she didn't receive any significant damage or casualties. Yeah. I guess that's uh, one benefit of all that heavy armor. Yeah. She also repeatedly bombarded Confederate positions in the campaign to take Fort Wagner on Morris Island. This began at the Second Battle of Fort Wagner. And she stayed there doing that for the next two months to participate in the Second Battle of Charleston Harbor. So during this time, she was the target of a failed spar torpedo boat attack. And while resupplying ammunition, she was called to provide cover for the monitor Weehawken because she had been run aground between Fort Sumter and Cummings Point. She anchored 1,200 yards in front of Fort Moultrie and forced the Confederate gunners to seek cover because she fired 483 shells. Dang. She did get struck 70 times. Well. She also contributed crewmen for the landing party that tried to seize Fort Sumter, but, you know, ultimately failed. So between July and October... She fired an estimated 4,439 rounds and was hit by a estimated 150 heavy projectiles, none of which inflicted any significant damage or casualties. That's incredible. I think that's, um, I can see why DuPont wanted to use that for the flagship, given how 
solid it was. I mean, it was solid. It was slow, and it was un unmaneuverable. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> it had its drawbacks for sure. But be, being able to receive that amount of fire with with nary a an issue beyond the pre existing issues of not being able to pilot it, um, that's pretty impressive. I'm sure that was revolutionary for the time. It's iron, baby. That's right. <laughs> Now, there was a spar torpedo attack made by a semi-submersible, the CSS David, on October 5th, 1863. This attack was successful. Fortunately, the damage was minor, and only one man passed away from the wounds he sustained from the attack. Now, she remained stationed there until June 6th, when she went back to Port Royal to start to prepare to return to Philadelphia to repair and, you know, do a pretty much just a general overhaul. It was time to get refitted. So she was given back her masts and rigging and most of the ship's crew with time uh, remaining on their enlistments were transferred to other ships in the squadron. So the guys that were about to get out were sail this boat back and bye-bye. <laughs> so they got to the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard June 24th, and she was decommissioned six days later because they needed to start her refit. I see. So her overhaul was finished in August, and she was given to Commodore William Radford. He stayed there training his gunny, gunnery crews until October, and joined the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron in Hampton Roads. She participated in a major assault on Fort Fisher in North Carolina. This was in an effort to stop blockade running into the Port of Wilmington. She was actually one of several warships that, was heavily sh that heavily shelled Fort Fisher, which prepared for a ground assault that captured the position January 15th. Because, you know, this was the assault that was called off for Christmas Day because they didn't want to, you know, fight on Christmas. Yeah, I think that's a a noble tradition. That's, you know, until after World War One was it? Right. Yeah, that was the, the time they said, you know what, we're, we're done being nice. Let's just mow each other down. And they did. Anywho. And how. <laughs> So, for the next few months, she supported Union activities on the James River and then was decommissioned on April 6, 1865. She was put into storage at League Island in Philadelphia, where December 15th, 16th, that night in 1866, she was destroyed by a fire. More than likely because somebody wasn't attending their stove. She was towed to shallow water where she burned and sank. When they did salvage her and they recovered her boilers, which they were like, hey, anybody want to buy these? And they were sold off in 1869. Huh. I wonder where they ended up. That'd be an interesting, uh, interesting historical tidbit. Mm, uh, yes, it would be. No idea. <laughs> they, they probably made it away into another boat. And, you know, it either got sunk or decommissioned, maybe resold again, and, you know, 
until they were obsolete. Yep, I imagine so, yes. Okay. All right, so we're going to cover one more boat. We're going to cover the USS Requin. This is the SS481. This was a request from a listener. So thank you, Trent. So we're jumping, you know, the to the future a you know, few hundred years. The USS Requin was a Tench class submarine and was the only ship of the US Navy to be named after the Requin. Do you know what a Requin is? I have no idea. I imagine it's a Quin that you do over again. No, it's a French word for shark. Oh. Well, that's fancy. All right, so let's go over her vital statistics, shall we? She was built by the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine. She was laid down August 24th, 1944, and launched January 1st, 1945. Wow. She was commissioned April 28th, 1945. Yet this was World War II. They were building boats fast. Yeah, I'll say. She was decommissioned December 2nd, 1968. She had a long service life. She really did. That's pretty impressive. Her name was stricken from the record October 20th, 1971, and she became a museum ship in Tampa Bay, Florida, and now in Pittsburgh. What do you mean it was taken off the record? Like she's no longer active duty, or what does that mean? When her name... when. The boat's name is strucken from the list. That means she's decommissioned and is no longer active duty. Okay. Wasn't sure if it was like they retired its jersey, and so nobody else can be the Requin. No, no, no. Not at all. They could build a Requin right now if they wanted to, but all the subs now are nuclear-powered, and they only name nuclear-powered things after present. Oh, okay. They, 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 they can only build so many then. Well, they'll just recycle the names, I guess. Oh, that's right. It could be the new George Washington. It'll just be the George Washington again. Oh, all right. I mean, look at the Enterprise. How many boats mm. have been named the Enterprise? That's the true. Enterprise is the most prolific name in the U.S. Navy. There's been like seven or eight ships bearing her name. Wow. They're building a new carrier right now to replace the USS Enterprise CVN-65 that was retired. Decommissioned. They're building a new USS, Enter USS Enterprise right now. As predicted by Star Trek, yes. Yes, Star Trek also jumped on the Enterprise bandwagon. So, back to the requin, shall we? <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> so, she was a Tench-class diesel and electric submarine. She deplaced 1,570 tons while surfaced and 2,414 tons submerged. Her length was 311 feet 9 inches, and her beam is 27 feet 4 inches. And she had a draft of 17 feet, technically, because when she submerged, it's, it's the entire boat. Right. Anyway, <laughs> she was powered by four Fairbanks Morse model 38 Delta 8 18 10-cylinder opposed piston diesel engines driving electrical generators. That is a mouthful. I'll say. Oof. Name your stuff better, guys. 
don't say that because they will, and it will get even longer. Oh, yeah. Better is uh, open to interpretation. Yeah. She had two 126-cell Sargo batteries. She had two low-speed direct-drive Elliott electric motors and two propellers. Uh, she Her power ran at 4 megawatts when she was surfaced and 2 megawatts submerged. At least I think that's megawatts. Yeah. Her speed when she was surfaced was 20.25 knots and submerged 8.75. So she did a little bit better than the... Than the new Ironsides? Than the new Ironsides, Absolutely. (laughs) Except when completely submerged. Well, even when submerged, she she still did better. That's amazing. By 1.75 knots. But the power generation, I think, was an almost an order of magnitude or several greater because I think you mentioned I want to say it was four kilowatts on the new iron sides this is four megawatts so that's well, yeah of course it's you know a couple hundred years in the future yeah I would hope that the technology <laughs> technology available be more advanced yeah I could see that so her range was 11,000 nautical miles when at when she surfaced and running 10 knots. Now, she could stay under, she could stay submerged for 48 hours at two knots. And her patrol was usually about 75 days. Her test depth, so crush depth, was 412 feet. You go, you go deeper than that, they don't know what's going to happen. You may not come back up. Hmm. Her crew complement was 10 officers and 71 enlisted men, and she was armed with 10 21-inch torpedo tubes, six of them forward, four of them aft, and she carried 28 torpedoes. She also had a 5-inch 25-caliber depth gun, and she had two anti-air weapons, a 40-millimeter Beaufort and a 20-millimeter Orlikon cannon. So, so here's a question, I guess, about submarines generally. Okay. You have deck guns. Yes. Um, when you submerge, these deck guns get flooded, I assume, right? No, they got plugs. Ah, uh, okay. Back when we, our submarines had deck guns, yeah, they, yeah. they would have a plug. There would, be, there would be plugs installed in the barrels. Okay. And so I guess they would just always be in unless you needed to engage? Okay. Very good. Thank you. That that clears up a long-standing question that I had. Yeah. I, I mean, these deck guns were fired from the deck anyway. Mm-hmm. So. So when she was constructed, she was sponsored by Miss Slay D. Cutter. And the first captain was Commander Slay D. Cutter. So pretty much the new captain was like, Wifey, will you please sponsor the boat that I just got Placing command of, and she's like, "Oh, anything for you, lovey bear." It's nice to see a loving marriage. That's it's beautiful. So, at first, the Requin carried a armament that was actually heavier than usual for a fleet submarine. More than likely, it was because Commander Cutter was one of the most decorated submarine commanding officers at the time. 
So she actually had a additional five inch twenty five caliber deck gun, as well as two twenty four tube five inch rocket launchers. Whoa. These were intended for use in bombarding Japan during Operation Downfall. This was the planned invasion of Kyoshu and Honshu, which were Operation Olympic and Operation Cornet, respectively. So her shakedown was off the New England coast, and she departed Portsmouth on June 3rd, 1945, and she went to Hawaii. There, she joined the Pacific Fleet July 13th at Balboa, Panama, and at the end of the month, she reached Pearl Harbor. So after two weeks, or two weeks after she arrived, three days before she was to begin her first patrol, World War II ended, and she was recalled and ordered back to the Atlantic. They were like, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> So she went back and arrived at Staten Island in New York, September 18th, to begin in what Commander Cutter would say, quote, a dull and boring assignment. Meaning that his boat is essentially a target for sonar school ships. Oh. So, yeah. That's not fun. January 6th, 1946, she set sail for Key West. They were like, party time in Florida. <laughs> she joined Submarine Squadron 4, Subron 4. And between August and November, she was at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine. Because it was time to convert her into something more useful. They converted her into a radar picket submarine. They took out her four stern torpedo tubes, along with both of the duck guns and her anti-aircraft cannons. Two of her forward torpedo tubes were inactivated, and, she, and they reduced her armament to only having 10 torpedoes. Hmm. And this is also when they were like, you know what, Cutter, we're done with you. You go off and do something else. We're going to give this boat a new skipper. A new life, a new skipper, and she was given to Commander George L. Street III in October of 1946. And this guy was actually a Medal of Honor winner. Whoa. Yeah, good guy. So now she's got a now she's a radar picket submarine. So she leaves the yard and resumes operations in the Western Atlantic in the fall of 1947 and moves north for exercises with her sister radar picket submarine, the Spanx. Spanx, like the shapely shorts that ladies wear? No, it's a shapely submarine. Oh, okay. Her hull number was the SS-489. Then the Raken crossed the Arctic Circle November 13th, which is really cool. Yeah. And her hull classification symbol was changed to SSR. What does that mean? SSR is radar picket sub. Oh, okay. So, in January 20th, a 1948, she began a modification to the Migraine 2 radar picket configuration back at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Maine. And in December, when it was all done... 
she left and started doing trials with her new radar equipment. She went to New London, Connecticut afterwards for duty with Submarine Squadron 8. In May of 49, she sailed east for her first deployment with the 6th Fleet, arriving at Gibraltar on May 14th, and she operated in the Mediterranean Sea until about June 30th. So after she got back, she was transferred to Norfolk, Virginia for duty with Subron 6. So into the spring of 1950, she operated in the Western Atlantic, ranging from you know, Nova Scotia to the West Indies. And, and after, and then she prepared for a, another six fleet tour. She was in the Mediterranean from January to May, 1951. And then she resumed operations off the East coast and in the Caribbean sea. When she got home in August of 52, she was back in Europe again. During September, she visited the UK, and in the in in October, she transited the Strait of Gibraltar. Nice for her sixth deployment. In '53, she maintained her schedule of second and sixth fleet operations, but at the end of the year, went into Philadelphia because they figured out that you know she needs to be overhauled. She needed to be modernized if she was going to be kept being effective and used. And they also removed her last anti-aircraft cannon. So she would have nothing other than those 10 torpedoes. Well, sometimes that's all you need. I mean, that's... I'll just end it there. That's with a shrug. You can't see the shrug on the podcast, but I'm shrugging. You're just thinking back to when we... our torpedo episodes and listening to the damage that they could do. Oh my gosh, yes. And I imagine hitting a submarine from a plane is difficult. Oh, yeah. Hitting anything that's moving is difficult. So a couple years later, May of 1955, she set sail for her fifth Mediterranean deployment. And, you know, did her job over there. Coming back in July, she remained on the East Coast and just went back and forth to the Caribbean until November when she rejoined the Sixth Fleet. So then she gets a second conversion. From June to August of 1959, she went to the Charleston Navy Yard in South Carolina, and they took out all of her radar equipment. And they actually improved her hull a bit to improve her streamline. That's cool. So then she was converted to fleet snorkel configuration. It was given the new hull classification symbol of SS, or given back her Hall classification symbol of just SS. For the listener, SS is attack submarine that is diesel electric power. I looked it up. Well, actually, SS is just submarine. Ah. Well, then I should check my sources next time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, August 15th, 1959, she rejoins Subron 6 in Norfolk for operations as just a normal run-of-the-mill attack submarine, which she kept doing until her decommissioning. She conducted local operations off the East Coast and in the Caribbean Sea. She loves the Caribbean. She likes the party there. Yeah, I'm thinking the officers probably like it better. I was mm. saying, yeah, Mediterranean and Caribbean. I'm like, 
It's not some uh, backwater outpost. These are really nice. So in the summer of 61, she served as a target for Task Group Alpha, which was led by the USS Saratoga CVA-6D. And this happened in the Caribbean Sea, I believe. Well, either off the East Coast or in the Caribbean. This happened in the East, off the East Coast or in the Caribbean Sea. So Requin conducted a periscope approach on Saratoga and launched a simulated torpedo attack. Then a helicopter dropped a exercise torpedo on Requin. Hello, we're above you. <laughs> Look up. This exercise torpedo hit forward and made several re-attacks, bouncing down the port side of the submarine. Whoa. So another a, a, a cool little footnote for her is on September 20th, 1963, she completed her 5,000th dive. That's quite a lot of dives. Yes, that is a lot of time underwater, which is, you know, what she was made to do. Oh, yeah. As long as you have an equal number of uh, surfacings, you're good. Yes, exactly. So between January and May of 64, she operated with the 6th Fleet and resumed her 2nd Fleet duties in 68. And she only had, during that time, two extended deployments. The Operation... And Unit Toss 7 in the fall of 66 had her cruise around the South American continent for exercises with various South American navies. And on her last six fleet deployment, they sent her back to the Mediterranean for duty from April to July of 67. Her last deployment began April 4th, 1967 to the Mediterranean. And she completed a series of exercises with the U.S. 6th Fleet. And just after doing that, she received word that the U.S. Signals Intelligence Ship, the USS Liberty, AGTR-5, was under attack. So Requin was ordered to steam to the defense of Liberty. On the way there, they received orders from the 6th Fleet commander to surface and go to Crete instead so i guess the attack was over and they were like oh, we don't need you there anymore why don't you go party at crete if they must i mean luckily with all those deployments to the caribbean and the mediterranean they're well practiced in partying <laughs> we're making it sound like all the all these guys did was party their entire career with a boat well i mean that's what the record shows i, I mean <laughs> how i how i read the history of this vessel. So May 28th, 1968, during her last deployment before she was decommissioned, she left Norfolk, Virginia as part of the search effort for a missing nuclear attack submarine, Ooh. the USS Scorpion SSN-589. So June 29th, 1968 comes around. And she was reclassified as a auxiliary submarine, AGSS-481. And then in October of 68, they began her inactivation at Norfolk Naval Station. She was decommissioned on December 3rd of 68 and, and was towed to St. Petersburg in Florida in February of 1969. 
She served there as a non-powered Naval Reserve training vessel for Naval Reserve Center St. Petersburg, which is just next to Albert Whitend Airport and also next to the Coast Guard Air Station, St. Petersburg. On June 30th, 1971, she was reclassified as a miscellaneous auxiliary submarine, IXSS-481. And then finally, on December 20th, 1971, she was stricken from the Naval Vessel Register. So, uh, June 17th, 72, she was transferred to a nonprofit memorial foundation in Tampa, Florida, and docked in the Hillsboro River, which is right next to Curtis Haxton Hill and the Tampa Museum of Art, across from the river of the University of Tampa and was opened up as a tourist attraction, as, you know, these museum ships often are. She stayed there until 1986 when the nonprofit folded due to, you know, evil people stuff. Oh, Ponzi schemes and whatnot? I don't know. Okay. You said you said evil people stuff, so I'm, my mind is running wild. Meth operation, maybe. Who knows? It could have been a front for so many different things. But continue. More, Sorry. more than likely, it was one bad person just stealing money. Mm-hmm. So she was closed down to because she didn't have any uh, funding or support anymore. She did get reopened for a very short time in 1988, and then was pretty much just abandoned at the pier for. Four four years. Whoa. Then in February of 1990, a guy named Senator John Hines introduced Senate Bill S.2151, which allowed Requin to be transferred to the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And on May 24th, she was towed to Tampa Shipyard, where they dry docked her and repaired her hull in preparation to remove to move her to Pittsburgh. And on August 7th, she left the International Ship Repair in Tampa under tow to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where she was lifted into barges and began her ride up the Mississippi River and the Ohio River to Pittsburgh. That is not the direction I thought they would go. That's interesting. <laughs> On September 4th, she arrived at the Carnegie Science Center. And on October 20th, 1990, she was dedicated as a memorial and museum exhibit and opened for tours. And you can go right now and see her for yourself if you want to go to Pittsburgh. Nice. That's cool. So she received four awards during her, her life. She received the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal and the World War II Victory Medal. She received the Navy Occupation Medal with Europe Clasp, and the National Defense Service Medal with Star. That's the Requin. That's really cool. That's, uh... So, listeners, if you go visit the Requin, you can show up to the museum and then impress them with all these facts. It's like, it looks like it had, uh, four aft torpedo tubes. Is that correct? Did they, uh, refit that at some point? <laughs> and then you can, uh, can really impress the people there. Or make them roll their eyes at you. It's like, Congratulations, uh, you did research. Another listener to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. We get it. 
We have teamed up with HeroCars.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels after every episode. And today we are going to honor Chief Petty Officer Matthew J. Bergois. His hometown was Tallahassee, Florida. He served with SEAL Naval Special Warfare Development Group. He received the Bronze Star, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was March 20th, 2002, killed in action near Kandahar, Afghanistan. He was 35 years old. So Matthew came from a military family. His great-grandfather fought in World War I. His grandfather had a 30-year career in the U.S. Navy, and his uncle served in the Vietnam War. His brother-in-law was also a Navy SEAL. So born in Illinois on January 18, 1967, Bergois moved with his family to Tallahassee, Florida. And as a young boy, according to his family, Matthew was an avid deer hunter and a fisherman. And he graduated from Leon High School in Tallahassee. Matthew joined the Florida National Guard in 1984, served until he enlisted in the Navy in August 1987, training as a hospital corpsman. 1988, he began the rigorous training required of his Navy SEAL, including underwater demolition SEAL training at Naval Amphibious Base Coronado and basic parachutist training at Fort Benning. During his first assignment with SEAL Team 2, Matthew was deployed to the Persian Gulf in support of Operation Desert Storm in 1991. In 1995, he returned to Coronado, California for four years, serving and training with SEAL Team 1. Beginning in May 1999, Matthew joined the Navy Special Warfare Development Group stationed at Naval Air Station Dam Neck Annex in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He was promoted Chief Petty Officer in September of 2001. Just weeks earlier, he and his wife, Michelle, had welcomed his son, Matthew Jr. Matthew and his Naval Special Warfare Development Group deployed to Afghanistan as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. Their assignment was to help ensure Al-Qaeda terrorists could no longer train or launch strikes from Afghanistan following their attack on the World Trade Center in New York on September 11, 2001. On March 28, 2002, Matthew and his fellow SEALs were on a refresher training exercise near Tarmac Farms, which was an abandoned Al-Qaeda terrorist training camp and former home to Osama bin Laden near Kandahar, Afghanistan, when Matthew was killed by a ground explosion. When Americans first went into Afghanistan to root out Al-Qaeda terrorists, an estimated 10 million landmines were set or still in place for more than two decades of conflict. Matthew had been expected to return home within a month. His son, Matthew Jr., was just seven months old. In a statement, Matthew's wife, Michelle, described her husband, quote, He had perseverance and determination, which made him excellent at his job. He was always striving to be the best, hence this made him an outstanding seal. Matt knew it was a difficult and dangerous job, but that never deterred him. He loved being a seal and working with his teammates, no matter what circumstance. So CPO Matthew J. Bergoin is honored on the memorial wall of the Naval Seal Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. So Chief Petty Officer Matthew, thank you. Thank you. All right, that is going to do it for us. Christoph. Yes, sir. Venerable XO, who do you want to take us out? Uh, yes. Good answer. Thank you for listening, listeners. Um, I hope you learned something about 
the new Ironsides and the Requin, I certainly did, and about ships in general. Um, if you want to contact us, uh, like, I believe, Trent, was that the person that contacted us about the Requin? Yes. If you want to contact us, um, feel free to email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, at usnhistorypod. We also have a Discord, which you can find in the show notes. And you can find all this stuff in the show notes. So go to the show notes and check it out. And then we're also on YouTube. So you can listen to us and, uh, yes, experience the U.S. Navy History Podcast on multiple platforms. Like, subscribe, and rate everywhere you can. That will help the show grow. And tell a friend. Absolutely. We love friends. Yes, if they're a friend of yours, they're a friend of ours. And with that, we're going to wish you guys a fair winds and following sea. Bye. Bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing. Departing.